Take a look behind the curtain with a real whistleblower and American patriot. Prepare to embrace the uncomfortable truth because this program has no time for comforting lies. Here is civil liberties enthusiast, Second Amendment defender, and recovering FBI agent, Kyle Serafin. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show. Today is Monday. It is July the 3rd, the day before 4th of July, and we are going to kick off this week in full style talking about revolution, maybe a revolution that's happening overseas. Uh, I want to say thanks to our sponsors really quick. We're going to be bringing on a guest, and I think we're going to have a very interesting and productive conversation. So stick around. You're going to enjoy this one. First, let's just say a quick thank you to my friends over at Catholic Vote, Catholic Vote and CatholicVote.org. You can sign up for their loop which will get you a morning email telling you what's going on in the world, what's going on in your part of the country. Sign up for The Loop by just punching your email in on the main page at catholicvote.org. A big thank you from our show that they are keeping us moving along. And then we're also going to say thanks to Patriot Coolers. Again, Patriot Coolers, built for freedom. What a great uh, long weekend for this sort of thing. If you don't have one of them, you can check them out at PatriotCoolers.com. Use promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, gets you 10% off. Again, promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, gets you 10% off. It's free shipping over 50 bucks. Easy to spend it. Send a gift. Send a thank you to somebody. Send a housewarming gift. And remember that they also, just like you, Patriots, loving freedom. Promo code Kyle, K-Y-L-E, for that 10% off. All right, folks, let's kick this thing off. I'm going to talk to you a little bit today about what I see going on in this country and what I see going on in other countries that are Western around the world. I would say that a Western and civilized nation has certain healthy hallmarks. We need a robust and capable public works or services, something that makes the trains run on time and make sure that the garbage cans are collected. We need rule of law that's enforced by governmental agencies that the citizens trust. That means there needs to be a fundamental belief that the police are looking out for everyone's interest. There needs to be a commitment to the common defense, which means a military that's dedicated to the purposes of the homeland and not endless foreign wars. Border policies have to be regulated for the benefit of businesses and citizens within that nation, which is to say that policies protect local products and local businesses so they can be successful at home. We need open commerce within our borders without burdensome regulations that only benefit the corrupt bureaucrats that are imposing them. And we need to be able to have free association by the citizenry, the ability to speak and to protest, an ability to petition the government for redress of grievances. And we have to see that the will of the people have a say on the impact or the direction of the political environment. Without some of these, a Western nation will groan and grumble. Without most of these, it will stumble and fall. And that may be what we are seeing overseas right now as a harbinger of things to come in this country. The degree to which these things are preserved and striven for shows, at least by proxy, the degree to which our government is serving the benefit of the people. And if these hallmarks fail and we can recognize them in real time, it would be fair to question the integrity of the system as a whole. Today, we're going to be bringing on uh, national file reporter Frankie Stocks, also known as Frank. We're going to get into why he went by one name versus the other. He's going to come on and talk to me about what's been going on in France, what it might mean here. And I do want to say right now, Thank you, Frank, and welcome to the Kyle Serafin Show, my friend. Thank you for having me, Kyle. It's an honor to be here. Well, I appreciate you uh, making time today, and I'm looking forward to kind of discussing some of these things. But before we get into that, I want to ask you, where did you come from? Where were you born, and where did you grow up? Oh, we, we lost audio. A little bit further south than there now. Culpepper's about uh, you know, 70, 80 miles south of uh, Washington, D.C., just to give the, the audience an idea of where it is. It's, it's not northern Virginia, but I would say northern Virginia is rapidly encroaching on that area. 
um, that is actually what really started a lot of my interest in this in the entire world of politics. Um, you know, it was a Culpeper was a hot spot during the Civil War. It was uh, the most fought over county and town in the Confederacy um, because of its proximity both to D.C. and to Richmond. So my entire life, I really grew up in the shadow of this this massive part of American history and really with a defined and distinct American and Southern culture in this area. And as I grew up, I really watched as one county after another to the north of us would fall really to the Washington DC metro area. And so that that got me extremely interested in how all of this works, you know, the, the size of the federal government. I watched uh, from afar as, as the federal government just began swallowing up entire parts of my home state. And uh, so that, that really made, uh, made me a small government activist uh, in a lot of ways, just watching the way that the federal government had come in and shifted and changed and, and really destroyed. So I started uh, I started writing. I started following politics extremely closely in my teen years. Before that, you know, I'd mentioned the Civil War. I had always been a huge history buff. I think that those two things really go hand in hand because most of what's happened throughout our history would not have been happening without political maneuvering over to the side, political maneuvering behind the scenes. So I was always fascinated with how those two things tied together. And uh, it really grew from there. You know, it, it grew into a fascination with these with these globalist entities that seek to come in and disrupt the entire United States, you know, not just our local communities, but the country as a whole, Western civilization as a whole, uh, the entire world. You know, they want to swallow up the entire world. So I got really in to uh, watching how everything worked behind the scenes, watching how how the media coverage was completely uh completely at odds with what was going on in real life and with what I would hear just talking to people. You know, I've always been kind of a, a lack of a better term, a social butterfly. So I would talk to a lot of people, meet a lot of people, get a lot of information from people. Um, and I would use that to form my own opinions. So I, I think that all of those things tied together to get me fascinated in journalism, reporting the whole nine yards. No, that makes perfect sense. And, and as we talked just before we came on, I like to give people an instinct about who we're hearing from, because there's nothing stranger than the idea that uh, some stranger would come up, write a story, and then you would immediately go, oh, yeah, that's something I'm going to go out and repair it. Um, the, the sort of confirmation bias is sort of the danger that people have without knowing what the lens is that you're looking at. Now, now, Culpaper, you'll be uh, surprised to learn, but I actually worked some drug cases out there when I was uh, assigned to the Washington field office. That's not a surprise. <laughs> kind, of, kind of a nice, pretty rural community. Uh, it's way out there, but you're in close proximity, like you said, to some of the great battlefields of the Civil War and the American Revolution. Um, there is an interesting sense of history when you are in that part of the world, particularly if you get outside of the cities. The cities seem to have forgotten what America was about. Yeah, they absolutely do. It's, uh, you know, our cities, which were once basically big, beautiful monuments to to America, to our ingenuity, to forging the way forward. Now our cities are rotting from the inside out. And I, I think it's interesting that you brought up that you worked some drug cases in that area, because, you know, even as far back as when I was born, obviously, there's always been a been a drug underbelly virtually everywhere but nothing like it is today. You know, this was a was a community where you would be proud to raise a family, where you would feel safe with your kids walking around town, out at the swimming pool with, with little supervision. 
And the, the way that drugs, especially opiates, have pushed in from D.C., from really getting it from all sides, D.C., Southern Maryland, Richmond, you know, these they've just totally flooded that area. And it's been tragic. You know, good, hardworking families have been completely ravaged by this, this uh, what's really an attack on the American people. I think that, that community is uh, is is really uh, can be a symbol for, for what we've seen all over the country. It's a microcosm of sorts for what we've seen all over the country. And it's, it's tragic to see, you know, it really is. We're seeing it everywhere. So you mentioned uh, activism a little bit. I know that's kind of the, the thing that goes on in journalism right now, that it's sort of left the, the uppercase J journalism, and we're kind of in the lowercase J and a lot more of like uppercase A activism. Did you study journalism? Did you train for this? Or do you have a degree in any particular field that, uh, that led you to this? No, I, I do not at all. Actually, I took kind of an unconventional uh, path to getting into this. I actually went went to trade school. I'm a master HVAC mechanic. Um, I worked in HVAC, you know, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning. For anyone that doesn't doesn't get the abbreviation, so I worked in the uh, in the air conditioning and uh, heating service installation repair industry for uh, I want to say eight years, nine years. I still do some work on the on the side. It's uh, rewarding, really, to go out and uh, break your back all day and see that you have a finished product in front of you, something that you've installed and built yourself or with a small group of guys. But, uh, no, I came up uh, through the trades. I just kind of started started sending out articles, sending out op-eds, sending out reports to the paper, to different websites. Uh, and I just kept on pushing forward, and that's how I got involved in it. And I think that you find a lot, especially nowadays, in this entire industry of journalism and this entire industry of reporting, that uh, oftentimes the people who went to some fancy schmancy journalism school are the people who are owned and operated by, we can call them the powers that be. Whereas you have uh, what you could call citizen journalists who have risen through the ranks, who have achieved things in their actual private life or in business or in sports or in law enforcement like you, Kyle, you know, people who have who have risen up through the uh, through the American American system, really, so to speak, and have kind of forged their own path forward. Once they arrive uh, and are given the opportunity to to do journalistic work, to do reporting, I think that the perspectives all combine for uh, for something that's much better, a totally better product than we had when we had three TV stations and they were all run by a guy that was hand selected out of Harvard Journalism School. Yeah, there's something to that. So uh, I, I've talked to Matt Taibbi about this, and I know this is one of the things he talks about um, sort of extensively. The this, the field of journalism used to be a blue-collar racket. Uh, and in fact, that's the name of, of his, uh, his organization is Racket. It, it used to be people that wanted to hold the powerful to account. So you had the guy smoking the cigarette, and he had his kind of newsboy hat on, and he didn't make a lot of money, but he got kind of his pleasure and his, um, you know, he felt like he earned his salt by going after people that were, you know, screwing over the regular man, the common man, because he was that sort of representative. He was able to go out there and report on a story, dig into it, old school kind of gumshoe detective. What is the perspective that you bring? And, I, and by the way, I love the the blue collar background. I, I actually, one of my, my favorite roommates was an HVAC mechanic guy and turned out into a millionaire. He ended up building a, a big company up and <laughs> there's money to be made in the trades, as as uh, as you well know. There's certainly that. But what is the perspective that you come in? Like, what is your lens that you look at? When you're evaluating information, how do you take that? And as opposed to maybe the way that uh, some of the folks that you deal with in the in, in the same sort of industry that have this background with the Ivy League school or a Columbia School of Journalism or something like that. 
You know, I love that he calls it a, a blue collar profession, being a, the journalism's a blue collar profession, because that's exactly the lens that I look through. You know, I look at every story, at every research process, uh, everything through the lens of really a Joe Smo middle-class, working-class American citizen who's been fortunate enough to uh, to get to this level where, I, where I'm able to do this for a living and where I'm able to talk to people who are really around the levers of power, so to speak. Uh, and I look at it all through the lens of just uh, your average, everyday American, and there's questions that I want answers to, and I know that those are questions that a lot of other folks out there want answers to. So I try to look at journalism as, we call it a national file, it's not just me, you know, a number of people over there, and we call it service journalism. We're providing a public service, providing a service to our fellow Americans, a service to the American people. And uh, I think that when you have a bunch of people who have come at it through different ways, you know, one guy may have worked in this field, another guy may have worked in that field. And I think that when a lot of people come at things from all of these different vantage points, but they all have this shared history, this shared life experience of being an American in common, that you really, that's the way that you dig for the truth. You know, you're, you're looking at multiple perspectives, multiple types of people, multiple backgrounds, and you're really diving into a story and you're looking at it uh, commensurate with, with your life experience. I, I think that that's the way that, uh, that independent media outlets have managed to become so successful because they're not just bringing in a bunch of folks who are going to look at it through some kind of academic lens or through some type of really politically charged from the top-down lens. So to kind of simplify this, I would say I look at it from a bottom-up lens as opposed to a top-down lens. You know, I, I am right there with my readers, with my viewers. I have the same interests that they do. I have the same problems in day-to-day -day life that they do. Uh, and I'm looking at it as a really a middle class, working class lens into what's going on in our government, be it federal, state or local. I love it. Tell people about National File, what it is, where they can find it and sort of maybe the philosophy that founded it. And, uh, and then we'll talk France. So National File, you find it at nationalfile.com. There's been some major stories broken over there. The Ashley Biden diary being one of them. The Cal Cunningham affair being one of them. Uh, Kevin McCarthy using FTX money to attack America first candidates in the 2022 midterms being another one of them. So at National File, we've got a great team of people. Our publisher, Noel Fritch, is a hard charging guy. He founded National File uh, a few years back, and it's really just has hit the ground running. Uh, we've had big stories all over the country, but we really like to to take a look at uh at more of your, the people that you're told are the next great America first voice to come to the front. We really like to take a look at these people and say, hey, you know, where did this guy come from? You know, where did this lady come from? What are, what are they really all about? So in, uh, at the core of National File is really just truth-telling, truth truth-seeking journalism, more old-fashioned journalism, kind of like we uh, brushed on a second ago, more detective work-style journalism, where uh, I think we all want to be that guy out there with the cigarette hanging out of his mouth and the golf hat on, you know, standing on the steps of City Hall. I think that really at its core, that's what the team of National File is all about. So it's a great site. I'd encourage anyone to go over there and check it out. Um, and I was actually, if it's any, if it's any sort of uh, endorsement, I was reading National File before I was writing there. So it's, I, uh, I really appreciate the entire team at that place. It makes sense. What about um, sourcing and sort of journalistic standards? What do you guys use to to make sure that the information that you're reporting is accurate and legit? Is there a is there a editorial standard? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's got to be legit. It's got to be verified by at least two sources. We'd like to have more than two sources. We do not like using unnamed sources like you'll see these places, you know, CNN, the New York Times, et cetera, doing. It's absolutely necessary. You know, I had a story not long ago where it was completely and totally necessary to protect the identity of a source for their safety. This was actually a more local story, but it was scary stuff. And uh, so unless someone needs to really be protected, I personally, and I know the rest of the team at National File, does not like going off of unnamed anonymous sources. That's something that we actively try to avoid doing. You know, we like to have multiple sources telling us the same thing, not cobbling information together from two or three different people and saying that it all lines up. You know, because at the end of the day, it's not, it's not even about the opinion of the journalist. It's not really about anyone's opinion. It's about the facts, and we report what we can prove and we don't do anything more than that. You know, we're not going out and making grand assumptions. We're not going out and interpreting things in favorable ways. You know, if, if this is reported on national file, we stand by it as the truth. Okay, well, let's uh, report some things that are the truth. We're going to show a video real quick, and then I'm going to get your reaction, kind of help people understand. Um, I think Americans, generally speaking, have a terrible understanding of what's going on in the rest of the world, including bad geography. That may be our school system. Let's do a, uh, that video. If we'll show the fireworks video right there, Ryan, and then we'll uh, we'll start digging into what the heck is going on and uh, over in Europe. control. So apparently that was not Portland in the summer of 2020, and it is not a 4th of July celebration. That was somewhere. Is that Paris, France? Is that what we were seeing? Yes. Yes. This France is completely out of control. This situation's really spiraling into what I would compare to a civil war. Now, I have been glued to my computer for the past three, four days, just watching these videos come in. No, no, just to, so that the audience knows, a great source for this is Telegram. The Europeans love Telegram. So that is a great source for, uh, for looking at a lot of this stuff on. Um, this is a complete and total disaster for France and for, for all of Europe. This is the, the direct repercussions of their open borders policies, of their, uh, their policies that have really been by design to chip away at the French identity and chip away at the European and Christian Catholic identities of these countries. They have imported hordes and hordes, as the police are calling them, hordes of sub-Saharan African and Middle Eastern Islamic migrants who now amount to uh, a full 10% of their country's population. They are completely under siege. This all comes on the heels of the police shooting of an Islamic criminal. This was a 17-year-old, despite his young age, he had a lengthy criminal record. He was stopped by the French police in a traffic stop. There's an officer hanging into his window and uh, he takes off. 
you know, he takes off, he, he throws the officer from the car, could have run him over and killed him, but he was shot. You know, he was shot at the very last second before the officer goes spiraling out of the car. So this is what kicked this entire thing off. And we're seeing in France, like we saw in the United States, the weaponization of really the demise of a criminal who put a police officer's life in jeopardy, who almost certainly would have killed the police officer or someone else had he been successfully able to speed away from that scene. So this criminal has been weaponized as the catalyst for these massive riots that have now taken the form of a holy war. Jihad has been declared and they are in the streets using fireworks as artillery, using guns as guns, despite France's uh, strict gun control laws. They're in the streets with automatic weapons, with machetes, with fireworks, and the entire country is spiraling completely and totally out of control. You know, these fireworks aren't just burning, uh, fizzling out, burning in the air like the 4th of July. They're using these to burn down police stations, schools, libraries. One of the libraries that was attacked housed tens of thousands of antique and really what you would call relics from 500, 600, 700 years ago. And it was mostly faith-based Christian Catholic writing from the French people. It's now all been destroyed by this. Uh, I don't even know if you'd call it a mob. I'd call it an army. You know, this is, has really been a, an Islamic army has been activated in France and it's now spreading towards the rest of Europe. This has sent the signal for other portions of Europe, for the Islamic populations to rise up and begin waging a holy war against their European host nations. Okay, let's let's do some video. We're going to show a little bit. Uh, folks, if you have not been paying attention to this, uh, Ryan's going to give us some video, the fires video, if you would, and then the street fires as well. We'll show some of that and then we'll show some looting as well. so there we go. Just some casual looting. Maybe we can show the uh, jihad video as well. You mentioned that it's been declared as a jihad. Let's uh, let's throw that up there, and then I'll, I'll get your kind of uh, explanation of it, if you don't mind as well. I'll give you another chance to grab a sip of coffee. Voilà. <laughs> So what do we see in there? What what is this guy talking about? What is the um you know what is the the motive of that crowd? And it also looks fairly homogenous compared to what we've seen in, in U.S. riots, where we see a lot of sort of the George Floyd protesters. They don't look a lot like George Floyd. They look a lot like white girls who went to college and and pierced their nose. Yeah, absolutely. Now this guy is out in the streets declaring this is a jihad. There has been an imam that's also declared a jihad. So really, they're parroting the uh, the imam's talking points here. He's saying that. Under the Quran, when a Muslim is killed by a non-Muslim, that this initiates a holy war, that this initiates a jihad. So he's really laying out for the entire crowd there that this is exactly what they're doing. You know, they are waging a jihad against the people of France and most importantly, against Christians. That's that's what I think that in in the news stories about this, what people are missing is that uh, at the core of all of this is a desire for conquest over Christian nations. Now, this is a conquest ideology. They have had a sleeping giant 
asleep in France for years and years and years. There have been uprisings, there have been riots and things like that, but nothing to this extent. And you're right, this really does not compare to the George Floyd riots in any in any scenario. There are you know, self-hating French communists out in the streets fighting alongside these people. But in the vast majority of cases, these crowds are so homogenous that there are now ethnic clashes among the rioters themselves. There are sects of Islamists, be they from Africa, be they from the Middle East, and they're now fighting amongst themselves at some areas in the streets because this has spiraled so out of control, they're now looking to see who's going to reign supreme. So this is 110% a war effort against the nation of France and against wider Western civilization. I think this is a really a matter of time until this spirals uh, into England and then later quite possibly into the United States, given that we have a porous Southern border and Islamists have been found crossing our border at a very regular rate, along with members of the Chinese Communist Party, who there's a very good chance that they could be putting the battery in many of their backs to do this, especially in the United States. So it's complete and total mayhem, complete and total chaos that we're seeing across the nation of France. And that that man's speech, you know, his his shouts, his screams, they really sum it up here. This is a holy war. This is a jihad. And they're not going to stop. It, it would appear that the French government is, is more than happy to just stand down and allow this to happen, allow this to spiral out of control. You could uh, argue that this was this was always the purpose of Open Borders Macron to get to this situation. And uh, I think that the that the people of France and their government are, are really going to have to come to a reckoning here. You know, we've seen the police speak out. There are French nationalists that are taking to the streets to combat this. But this is completely and totally out of control. And, you know, to be honest, this is making the George Floyd riots look like a, a picnic. You know, I mean, this is this is uh, something out of a war zone. This is beyond a riot. The, the term for it is riots, of course, but there's, this is not a riot. This is a war effort. This is well beyond a riot at this point. This, these look like scenes we would be watching on TV come in from the Middle East. Sure. Now, what are these, what are these French nationalists? What do they look like? What are they, what are they fighting back with? What is that sort of resistance? And then who else is involved in fighting this, this group of people? So most of the the French nationalists I'm reading, I'm seeing in videos are actually uh, groups of what they call football hooligans, you know, soccer hooligans. And they have a great tradition in many of these European countries where the diehard soccer fans also happen to be diehard patriots. And so they have had in in multiple cities, groups of these soccer fans, young, uh, politically active young men, young women in some cases, coming out, guarding storefronts and fighting back with anything that they can muster, you know, clubs, chair legs, um, what look like baseball bats, you know, but these, this is a disarmed population. So they're at a massive disadvantage here. And, uh, you know, I would, I would almost be certain that if things got so out of control that one of these uh, Frenchmen actually killed a demonstrator, or I'm not going to call him a demonstrator, actually killed one of these terrorists, um, in, in what would be self-defense, I'm quite sure that they would be railroaded. They would be thrown in prison for the rest of their life or close to it, whereas these other folks are really getting by, um, in many cases, unchallenged. You know, the, the other group of people in France that are pushing back on this are the police. There was a joint statement issued by the two largest police unions in France who uh, said that they are at war with savage hordes, that these, that these migrants that these Islamists, that they can no longer stand by and allow them to go unchecked, allow them to go unchallenged. They really put the ball in the French government's court. 
they said, you're going to issue a, uh, a proclamation. You're going to issue an order for us to actually go gloves off with these people, for us to actually go out here and stop this. And we're going to have to take matters into our own hands. They actually described that they would uh, that they would become the resistance against the French government in this situation. So I think that they're very close to reaching a breaking point. I think that the French government under Macron has deliberately stood down and allowed this to go on. I mean, Macron was out at an Elton John concert while French people are having their entire apartment blocks burnt to the ground. He was at an Elton John concert while a French politician's wife and children are being attacked in their home. You know, uh, these people attempting to set fire to their home with the children and the wife in it. The wife actually broke her leg trying to flee, trying to protect her children, and one of the children was hurt as well. So this is uh, this is completely spiraling out of control, and I think that we're seeing certain segments of the French population rise up, but in no way do I believe and in no way do the reports indicate that this is a majority of the population. I think most of the people have been quelled, most of the people have been disarmed, and it's not really a knock on them that they're not out in the streets doing anything about it because they've been disarmed. You know, it's really go out there at your own peril, go out there at your own risk of being thrown in prison for the rest of your life. Some of these uh, folks have weighed the options and they're saying that's their best bet. You know, we're not going to sit down and let this invading army take over our country. But I think that the vast majority of the population has really been locked down inside of their houses, hoping that this will pass. We're now this is going on a week of these riots happening. I, I don't think that this is going to just pass. I think that we're seeing a summer of rage play out like we saw in the United States, you know, summer of death a summer of destruction. And the longer that the French government allows this to go on, I mean, they have sat and allowed these people to steal police vehicles full of police guns and drive them down the street, you know, never to be seen again. This, this, this army of jihadists is arming themselves with the weapons of the French government. They are taking their weapons and they are arming themselves with it while the, uh, while the people are, are completely disarmed and completely helpless to do anything about it. So we've got some footage of the uh, of the looting, uh, Ryan. If you want to pull up the uh, the drive by looting videos that we've got, and we'll kind of throw that up there, and then I want to touch on some of the articles that you've written as well, and we're going to kind of go through your coverage of it. Okay, that was intense. Yeah, and you can see that uh, that that police officer is using his strobe feature to try to obstruct the camera, which makes sense too. Um, I, I see people in the chat are mentioning, you know, ten officers can't take down very many people. Uh, end of the day, anybody who's ever gone one on one with a subject and tried to put them in custody, it can be an exhausting fight, and it's it's very difficult, you know, under the best circumstances, and those don't look like it. So let's let's kind of uh, start on a timeline, if you don't mind. Maybe you can. We talked about the uh, the seventeen year old is killed. He's killed trying to uh, basically drive off with a police officer hanging out of the window. 
And then what are the incremental steps as you kind of organize it in your mind? Obviously, the response with uh, Macron is is still playing with Elton John, and we're seeing local politicians being attacked. Let's let's break this out. How did it start? Where does it go? And then we can maybe look at some parallels and see what kind of things are going on that uh, that we can use as sort of warning signs. Yeah. So it all began, you know, really with the uh, with the killing of who they're identifying as Nahel M. He was the 17 year old Muslim who was shot uh, to death by the police during the traffic stop. From there, this turns into sort of roving gangs coming out, you know, protesting, but starting to get a little bit violent. And really within 24 hours, the entire situation started spinning out of control. It spread all over the country. Not even small towns in France are safe from this. It is literally all over the country. They, uh, they began by going out into the streets and looting. They, uh, it then escalates to going out into the streets and attacking whatever Frenchmen they can see walking down the street. They're getting into uh, confrontations with the police. But just as you just mentioned, with the police being sent out and, you know, one cop to 10 suspects or 10 cops to 100 suspects or perpetrators, I mean, these guys are going out there as sitting ducks. And in many cases, they're not carrying firearms. The ones that are, we're seeing their firearms being taken away. Mm -hmm. So as the days have gone on, the days have worn on, this has become more and more violent, more and more out of control. There was a video circulating yesterday of a uh, Frenchman who had his hand chopped off by a rioter with a machete. Um, you could see his hand laying next, next to him. Right. He had been forced onto the ground and had his hand chopped off. So this is, has become a really an attack on individual French citizens as this has worn on. They've started moving almost, it's almost as if there's nothing left to loot. They've started moving away from the mass looting to attacks on whatever bystander. In some cases, I'm, uh, I'm actually seeing that they're turning on the French communists and uh, they're attacking them, you know, just as, as mixed into this jihadist uh, army, just as they're clashing among themselves, they're now clashing with their French communist uh, counterparts. So this has really evolved, as we've seen throughout the past few days, throughout the past week, into where now it's it's really, really turned into attacks on individual homes. You know, the, the French politician, the mayor of a suburban town outside of uh, outside of Paris, his residence was attacked. They used a car that they'd set on fire as sort of a flaming battering ram to breach the gate of his property, to drive it into his house, ram it into his house to uh, an attempt to burn the house down. So there were multiple apartment complexes have been torched. You know, there was a French firefighter just uh, last night who was killed when uh, when one of these blazes spiraled out of control. They're out there trying to fight the fires. The firemen are being attacked by the rioters who are trying to obstruct them from putting out any of the fires. This is completely spiraled, totally out of control. Uh, the French police, you know, God bless the French police for standing up and for calling on the Macron government to actually come out and get their act together and do something about it. But the, the police are not going to be able to handle this by themselves at this point. There's 45,000 cops have been activated and sent out into the streets. These cops are armed to varying degrees. Some of them may have a baton. Some of them may have a sidearm. Some of them may be carrying what we'd call, you know, more of a military style weapon. But this is, is, is not even comparable to sending out the American police where virtually every single cop has a gun. You know, this is, is not even comparable to that. So there, I think that there, we're really getting to the point where if the French don't call in their military, at least to some extent, 
to get this under control. It's it's not going to be quelled. It's going to be totally disastrous. It's it's spun off into Belgium. It's spun off into Switzerland. You know, I'm hearing that there's uh, that there's been some unrest in some corners of Germany, and it could be a matter of time until the massive sleeping giant of Islamist fundamentalists that have been uh, brought into Germany really rises up and joins in on this. So this is becoming a pan-European problem. And it all started when this 17-year-old Islamic criminal was shot by police when he made what I would call, what most people would call, an attempt on a police officer's life during a traffic stop. It is it is spun out of control from that to street demonstrations very quickly into looting, very quickly into violence, and very quickly into out-of-control total war all over the nation of France. No town is safe. Suburban, countryside, city, they are all being attacked right now. There was a small town police station. To put it into uh, perspective, this was a town of about 15,000 people. Their police station was attacked and burnt to the ground when these marauders reached it. So this is, uh, this is a dire situation. And it, it's really tragic to watch it play out and to see Emmanuel Macron go and say, actually, you know, this is a uh, this is the fault of poor parenting video game. You know, he will not call this what it is. He will not call this an attack on the French people, an attack on the French, French nation, and an attack on Christianity and Europe as a whole. You know, they, they want to divert from that. They want to uh, maybe trot out their World Economic Forum-sponsored internet kill switch to uh, give that a good test run. This is beyond people orchestrating flash mob lootings at a target. This is well beyond that. This is organized warfare against the people of France, and it's quickly spreading to be against all of Europe. Yeah, so one of the things that stood out about what you just said, at least on my end, is that we're talking about 24 hours, and then there's this massive reaction. What do you attribute that to? And before we go any further, folks, if you're watching our live stream, if you like what you're seeing, give us a like. Give us one of those uh, thumbs up. You can uh, like the smash button, as my buddy Eric likes to say, and uh, and let people know that uh, this is this is something that is interesting to you. Also, if you like what uh, Ryan's been doing on the production end of it, we've been spending a lot of time here trying to up the, the quality of the feed, so I hope you guys will appreciate that. Um, Frank, we're seeing some very, very fast reactions. That doesn't seem common in many places, was this just a like a, a ticking time bomb or was there something else going on? I, I completely and totally believe this was a ticking time bomb. I think that we have seen for years and years and years these radical Islamist groups uh, growing their presence in Europe, especially in France. Uh, radical imams growing their presence in Europe and in France. You know, there's a. Uh, you can look at certain internet metrics and you'll see that in entire cities in France, there could be some, what we would believe to be an obscure radical imam somewhere in Yemen. He is the most watched, you know, religious source, the most watched news source in entire towns because the population of France has become so massively Islamic. It's uh, an estimated 10% of the country is now Islamic, of Middle Eastern and of Sub-Saharan African extraction. So this is uh, really a sleeping giant. I think that we have seen people getting radicalized at record-setting paces uh, within these radical Islamic movements. I think they were truly, they were waiting for any catalyst to set this thing off, any excuse. And uh, really the more hardcore ones, of course, as we know, they don't need an excuse. But to get the rest of the population to really go along with them, to to really bait the rest of the population into coming out in the streets, putting not only their lives on the line, but killing other people, putting other people's lives on the line. They were looking for any moment. And I think this was the moment that made it happen. 
So it, it could have been any number of things, but they got really uh, what they were begging for with the uh, with the shooting of this Islamic teenager. Uh, they really in the video footage being released. You know, the video footage comes out. The entire situation spins completely and totally out of control. Yeah. Now, what, what sort of ways are they organizing? You mentioned an Internet kill switch. So what does that look like? What's the what's the game plan if, if they do? And what do you think the implications are? You know, I think that the Internet kill switch, that the only thing that that's going to do is to keep uh, French people in extreme danger. They're going to be severely limited in getting any kind of uh, direct news from their from their public government officials, from the government departments like the Department of Interior, who are providing updates on Twitter and places like that. So if the Internet is cut off, the average Frenchman, the average French woman is going to suffer. These Islamists in France, in Europe, they, they don't really need the Internet to do these things because they're largely confined to their own individual neighborhoods. So as, as neighborhood after neighborhood becomes more and more radicalized, as neighborhood after neighborhood uh, becomes more and more openly violent, it's, it's really the internet, uh, killing the internet's only gonna hurt law-abiding citizens. It's like banning guns in, in America. Who are you gonna disarm? You're gonna disarm law-abiding citizens. The criminals are always gonna have guns. So in France, the, the criminal Islamists the criminal migrants who are on a very regular basis going on slashing attacks, going on terror sprees, you know, they're communicating with each other no matter what. They speak different languages than the French. The French can't interrupt their conversations, can't eavesdrop on them if they tried to sure. without an interpreter present. So they don't need the internet to communicate. They don't need the internet to organize. They're now out in the streets as massive mobs coming out of their neighborhoods where they've already been able to organize in person. And now they're out in the street and they can further organize through language, through action, through any number of means. They don't need the internet to do this. I mean, some of the worst riots in human history came long before the internet was ever thought of. Certainly. So I think that's what we're seeing again. They're just taking away a safety net from law-abiding citizens. And there is a, a real, real uh, prospect that the entire internet kill switch is to test run World Economic Forum plans to develop a global internet kill switch. Interesting. Uh, and didn't we just see a uh, maybe a Syrian? They claimed that it was mental health was an issue, but running around on a playground with a knife, stabbing a small child or a baby. Is, is, is that France? Is that what I'm remembering? Yes, absolutely. That was France. Uh, it was a, a Syrian uh, so-called refugee. Now, a really interesting aspect here is they do want to claim that this guy's mentally ill, the whole nine yards. He disguised himself as a Christian to gain admittance into Europe at one of the rare points in time when they were sort of stimming the flow of the of the Islamic migrants until they could they could supposedly weed out who's good and who's bad. This guy disguised himself, fraudulently identified himself as a Christian to gain entrance into Europe for the sole purpose, it would appear, of waging an Islamic terror attack. And you know, he ran around a playground butchering kids and their mothers, you know, screaming and shouting, Allahu Akbar. This was uh, this was no mentally ill guy. This was well thought out. And this was planned uh, in advance, just as I believe that these these riots were planned in advance. You know, this this shooting, this police shooting may have been the catalyst to set it all off. But that was more of a ghost signal. This was this was planned long term. There's there's no way that it was not. And uh, in many cases, I think that these these if not this exact event, these types of events, these types of plans are hatched on the road to Europe by these groups of people as they come into contact with each other. 
What, how many thousands of uh, migrant, you know, refugees, Muslim uh, country sort of refugees are in France specifically? Do you have an idea of numbers? There are virtually uh, Islamic migrants from every country in the Middle East, from every country in Africa, in, in Islamic Africa, I should say, in North Africa, in Sub-Saharan Africa. I mean, they are numbering in the millions. There are thousands, tens of thousands coming in each month onto European shores. We're seeing video footage of, and it's not just France, I mean, Italy, Greece, you know, the entire Mediterranean is being pounded by these people. I think that a lot of times the way that history is shaken out, that France, it's really forgotten when you're just thinking in, in plain Jane terms, it's kind of forgotten that France has a massive border with the Mediterranean Sea. You know, it's, it's not just the coast at Normandy, it's the Mediterranean Sea. France has a very long sea border with the continent of Africa. You go right over the Mediterranean and you're in Africa, you're in Islamic territory. A lot of these were French colonies, so like Morocco, for instance, um, which is where the family of the guy Nahel M, who was shot by the police, hailed from. They were Moroccan uh, extraction. So these these people are coming in by the thousands, by the tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands. Over the course of the uh, the past decade, the past couple of years, it has become by the millions. Um, they're numbering 10% of France's population, and that is no small number there. I mean, to put that into perspective, the United States of America has a has a black population of around 12 percent. I mean, this is this is they're becoming the the largest minority group in France. I mean, for for the United States's entire history. And obviously, just let me throw this out there. This isn't to compare these two groups of people at all. This is to put this into perspective. You know, the United States throughout its history has had a, between a roughly 10 and 15 percent uh, black American population. So with this group coming into France, these Islamic migrants, I mean, there are, is going to be a greater proportion of Islamic migrants in France than America will have had native-born black Americans throughout our entire history. This isn't some small fringe minority group. It's not 1% of people. This is a full one-tenth of their country, and it's getting larger. And they're now bragging. They're now hoping. They're now claiming that they're going to be the majority of France by 2050. And at the rate in which they're coming in, that does not appear unlikely at all. And you're saying um, the, the comparison to black Americans as an easy way of kind of like visually rep recognizing how many people we're talking about. Like we all have black friends. Yeah. We all know black people that live around us. So if you're if you're looking around and, you know, I'm sure they have the same instincts. There's certain areas where that's not common. There's certain areas where it's more common. There's certain there's whole cities that are that are uh, majority black at this point. And then, you know, so be it, whatever it is, it doesn't matter. But as a visual representation, it is a kind of a delineation to see how frequent these people have come in and. We're talking that black Americans have been here since the beginning uh, in many ways. And, you know, they're they're part of America's history. We're talking about people that have showed up in about a decade. Is that kind of accurate? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This has been in, in That's a, a decade. Sea change. In That's decades. a sea change yes. event. Exactly. It's a sea change event. And it's, it's you know, like you say, there's cities where now the majority of the population in France is of third world migrant Islamic extraction. I mean, this has happened rapidly. This isn't some a group of people that France has been been existing with inside of their country for a th uh, 400, 500 years. I mean, this is all new. This has all happened rapidly. And they're coming in not to assimilate, not to build up France like we had in America, where we had two different ethnic groups really building this country yep. every single step of the way. In France, they have now had an entire one-tenth of their country come in with what looks like the express purpose of destroying it.
Yeah, radically different. Uh, I, you know, I would say that they're. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just doing the parallels or the lack thereof when we talk about what goes on in this country versus what goes on for for many black uh, families. But it's like American history is black history if you think about music, if you think about a lot of the culture, if you think about you know a lot of our sports stars, a lot of like you name it. There, like every part of public life has been integrated because of those things. Uh, at least that's the way I grew up with it, and so we have the same values and the same interests. And then you bring in, imagine that subset of people having a radically different uh, belief and and goal and cultural values and so on. Let's do some parallels. Um, we've already moved kind of into the parallels in America. Let's talk about the parallels that exist with our borders. And you mentioned the southern border of France, which is essentially a sea border. Let's talk about some of the things that we're seeing here, some of the things you've been covering related to you know, are there some are there some lessons, some takeaways that Americans should be looking at and seeing, is this a harbinger of what's to come or is this just Europe being Europe? No, I think that this is 110 percent a harbinger of things to come. You know, I think that the that the Europe being Europe, uh, well, that's definitely true in many instances when we see these crazy, you know, we're going to ban trans fats and we're going to ban sodas. You know, that sounds like it's it's fully taken out of Europe where the government has massive control over the people. But no, this is uh, this is really a sign of what's to come. You know, Steve Bannon, the great Steve Bannon, he has said for years and years and years that the United States of America is really downstream from Europe, downstream from Britain, that the things that play out there politically, that you can look at that and that you can see there's a very good chance that similar things are going to begin playing out in America. You know, we're sort of removed from the rest of the Western world and that we have an ocean dividing us from uh, from Europe and from the European continent. But this is uh, 100 percent exactly what uh what the main fear in the united states should be given our immigration system and given our open border and really to take it even a step further as far as it being a radical islamic you know overtaking of france well yes that is happening there this should really give pause to our southern border and the damage that drug cartels organized campaigns by drug cartels could do to the United States. They start pouring people into the, which they already are, but they start pouring in sleeper cells, pouring in people who are one day going to be activated to really take on, really start burning American cities. They start pouring people over our Southern border like that. We're gonna end up with the situation just like we have in France. You talk to some people and they say that's already here. The cartel sleeper cells are already here. They're already doing this and they're helping Islamic fundamentalists cross the border. And they're helping the Chinese communists cross the border in exchange for fentanyl, which is also crossing the border and killing Americans. So what we're seeing in France is really a sign of what could be to come in the United States. Our border has been so out of control for so long. You know, we've really been dealing with massive waves of illegal migration in the United States longer than Europe has. This 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 massive assault on Europe has been going on, but it really took off. Uh, around 2014, 2015 in that era, really took off to coincide with the, uh, with the regime change and the overthrows in North Africa and in the Middle East. So in the United States, you know, when you look at us and you see that our borders have been wide open for a generation, that we were giving amnesty to illegals as far back as Ronald Reagan. So this was has really not been taken seriously as an issue of both parties for a generation. 
and our border remains wide open. We have people on the terrorist watch list coming into this country. We have drug cartels pouring into this country ready to wreak havoc. There have been drug cartel clashes that have spilled over into the United States. There have even been drug cartel clashes with the Mexican police, Mexican military that have spilled directly to the U.S. border. So this is a very dangerous situation when you begin drawing parallels, because you can see that the United States, in a lot of ways, is not far behind France. And when we're talking about bringing in an alien population into our country, a completely different and, and oftentimes population that has a nefarious leadership and that has nefarious reasons for coming into this country. You know, we're getting it not only from Islamists, not only from the Chinese Communist Party, but from organized drug cartels pouring into this country. Yeah, no, 100% that. Now, here's the other thing. We also brought in over 100,000 members of the uh, former, you know, situation in Af Afghanistan. We brought them all in, let a bunch of them kind of loose. We have this parolee situation that's going on where, you know, they, they came in and then semi-vetted at best. I've, I've had uh, people from DHS on my show talking about this, that we don't really even know who the hell came into this country. So not only are we catching it from the southern border, we're importing it on our own. Um, and, and with unknown results uh, so far, I mean, nothing's happened yet, but, uh, you can imagine that something might, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that really goes back to, uh, when you take a look at things like chain migration and where, where one member of a family from the middle East is able to come into the United States. And then in a couple of years, their entire family is able to follow them over here. People who we don't know if they're related, they could just come from the same village and be calling each other their brothers so that this guy can get into the U.S. That's a great example that you used with the mass importation of the Afghans into the United States, because that was another group of people who really we had no idea about. We had no idea who we were bringing in and who we were inviting into our country. And uh, I'm actually glad that you brought this up. Because I was just talking about the southern border and while we get and oftentimes, you know, it is kabuki theater, but we get tough talk from our politicians on the border and the things that they're going to do on the border. But people don't like talking about these massive visa programs that have opened America's borders up to the third world, especially to the Middle East. I mean, you can take a look back to the San Bernardino shooting that they desperately tried to say was not a terrorist attack, but it was. And that shooting was a direct result of American visa programs and American chain migration programs run muck in the Middle East. So this on a smaller scale has happened before in the United States. I think that every single year, every single day, really, that we have these ridiculous, these lavish migration programs where we will fly you into the United States. You know, say you're not a terrorist. We'll fly you into the United States. No more questions asked. You know, we don't know who you are. We don't know if the person sitting beside you is really your son. We don't know if the person sitting beside you is your brother or your wife. They could just be someone from your village. But we're going to fly you in because you said so and because, you know, it's the nice thing to do. So this is really this is suicide by Western civilization. And it's deliberate. This is coming from the people at the very, very top. It's coming from these globalist organizations, from these really global bad guys, these James Bond type villains at the UN, at the World Economic Forum, and all of these other groups that have seized control of our government. I mean, that's the only thing to call it. They have seized control of our governments. In some areas, they have way more control, like in France, and that we're seeing the product of it play out right here. It's it's it truly should be terrifying for Americans to be looking across the ocean and see what is playing out in France. This should be a massive wake up call to the American people to say we have to do something to secure this country or we will be next.
So I did an interview with a woman on one of the Afghan refugee camps. This won't surprise you, but it might amuse you a little bit. And um, we're looking at her ID and we're talking to her and we're having this discussion. And in the course of it, I said, uh, so you're, you're 25. And, and she says, no, 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 I'm 23. I said, well, your ID says you're 25. And she said, yeah, that's what the lady who made the ID wrote down. And I said, well, why did she do that? And this is obviously through an interpreter. And she said, well, the woman who was making the idea looked at me and said, you're too tall to be 23, so you must be 25. And that's the level of scrutiny that we see in the identifications, the level of vetting that was going on with actually just the straight ID processes bringing people in. And that's the ID she walks around in the United States, you know, in in these refugee camps or these parolee camps uh, on the military bases. So you can imagine the lack of vetting. It literally was just somebody looking at somebody and deciding, oh, you're from this place. This is probably who you are. This is what your birthday must be. You know, no real identifiers, nothing you can really ping against other than the legit biometrics, which we weren't collecting for some reason, which is also pretty scary stuff. Yeah, that's uh, that is that seems to be their their M.O. in letting these people into the United States. You know, a while back, I talked to a nurse. This was when um, when the the Biden regime, the Biden administration was flying in migrants from the border to. And obviously, they're still doing this. But at this time, it was more to my relative area around where I live, around where I work. And they were they were coming in in hordes. They were being enrolled in public schools. I spoke with a nurse who swore to me up and down that uh, that multiple young, supposedly young patients who she had done physicals on, who she had looked over. These were supposed to be their physicals to get them into public schools, that everything indicated that they were in their early 20s, that everything indicated that they were being others were being enrolled in a middle school and they should be a senior in high school or they should be a freshman at the local community college. But these they have no idea who these people are and they do not care. So we're seeing this happen, you know, really come from multiple fronts. And uh, it's 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 completely dangerous. And in a lot of ways, it's a disservice to the people who they claim that they're bringing in here and helping. You know, the ones who are law abiding people, the ones who are looking for a better life. It's really a disservice to hamstring someone by claiming that they're 10 to 15 years younger than they are or 10 years older than they are, whatever the case may be. Yeah. One of my uh, one of my associates who still works for the bureau was was running, I think, 110 sources in Afghanistan. And, you know, those are the people that we wanted to get out. Obviously, that's what this country was interested in. And he only was able to get about half of them out. I think he had at least 50 that were still stranded there with their families. And those are the people that got left behind. Those are the ones theoretically these programs were set up to do. And instead, we just took whatever randos were at the gate. And we have some pretty credible information, at least on this show, that uh, a lot of them were the people that were charged with guarding the gates uh, in Kabul at the airport there. They were the first ones to leave because they knew the country was going to fall. So kind of scary stuff. You've got the the exact opposite of what we wanted to bring in, which was people that helped the United States forces. And instead, the people that just exposed United States forces to the Taliban and eventually that suicide bomber that killed 13 service members uh, as we were pulling out in uh, in August. Um, where does it go from here? Like what, we're looking at a really wild kind of political climate. Uh, and I know we're going to be respectful of your time here because we're coming up on that that limit, which we talked about. So uh, we've got a political environment that's pretty radical. That is clearly uh, stepped off the rails of anything that we've normally done in this country. So how do you see these two things playing out? Is there a relationship there? And if so, what is it? Yeah, I think that this is going to be a, a massive issue for our country to face, you know, politically, culturally for years and years and years to come. Our borders have already been so open for so long that we we 
you know, I think that anyone that, that, that believes that there are not massive sleeper cells just waiting to be tapped into in the United States is out of their mind. You know, uh, I think that this is that what we're seeing play out in Europe that we're going to have to prepare for in the United States. We need to secure our country. We have to secure our country now. You know, we have to secure our country yesterday. 10 years ago. Like this this can as just kind of take the the political term that they love to throw around on Fox News and the like. You know, this can has been kicked down the road now for years and years and years and years and we are reaching a breaking point. We're going to reach a point where good God-fearing Americans come very very close to being outnumbered and to being held really at the mercy of these mobs, of these violent terroristic mobs who uh as we see in France they have no problem taking to the streets, destroying, killing. I mean, this goes so far beyond the George Floyd riots. This goes so far beyond what we've seen in the United States. This is an organized, foreign-sponsored effort linked up with radical Islamic groups, linked up with their uh, associated network of leftists. Uh, and this is this has just completely thrown France into chaos. It's throwing other European countries. We're going to have real, uh, uh, real serious issues with this coming into the United States and not being able to keep control of it. You know, our our foreign born population, who we know nothing about, is exploding in numbers. Meanwhile, Americans you know, we have low birth rates. We're actively being discouraged from uh, from having children, from finding success in our lives. So it's, it, it really looks like we are uh, yesterday's hat to so many of these in the political in the political realm and that they are just welcoming. They are knocking down our borders to welcome in their uh, their replacement population who's going to completely wage war on the U.S. Now, in the meantime, we've got record rally turnouts for guys like President Trump. Um, we have a significant kind of pushback in the, uh, the Supreme Court saying things about gun rights and about uh, affirmative action being knocked down. So there is kind of a swing that is happening, maybe a little too little too late. I don't know what your take is. I'm curious, you're in rural America, you're from rural America. There's obviously a very different culture out in places where population density is not the same as American cities. So yeah. how, do you, how, how do you see this going? Because there's obviously... There's obviously two ways this could go down, but, uh, you know, there are kind of two Americas as well. Yeah, you know, I'm glad that you brought up the rallies and things because I, I believe in the American people. You know, I am a true believer in the United States of America and in the American people. It is encouraging when you turn on your TV and you see like 70,000 people pouring into a town of 10,000 or however, the, a small town. In South Carolina, you know, people from all over the area pouring in to watch someone like President Trump give a speech or you see people, you know, really activating and coming alive online, going to school board meetings and things. That's been a big thing in my area has been the school board meetings, people to, uh, turning in to school board meetings, coming and organizing among their local community. I think that uh, that rural America, how it was once kind of shielded from these national you know, ebbs and flows and the pendulum going from one side to another. I, I don't think that it's like that anymore. Actually, the rural community where I hail from has been completely and totally pounded with illegal aliens who have been bussed in and dropped off. You know, this is uh, so there's a an organized attack on the rural communities, just as there has been an organized attack on our urban communities. I think that the uh, that the big thing that we're seeing, though, is in uh, and, you know, and 
let me say this in rural areas i think there's always been a misconception that's been uh, played out by the media where people like don't get along or they're racist or whatever and i've always known people in rural areas no matter who you are to really come together with shared experiences or help each other out or you know there's just not that many people to choose to be friends from so everybody's friends with each other and i think that uh that that particular aspect has really helped in rural areas where wide swaths of people who may not uh, have a job in common, may not have, you know, intricate views on certain issues in common, may not have their total background or their family's origin in common, they're able to very quickly put aside their differences and come together and say, we're going to preserve our way of life. I think the patriotism is very high in rural communities, you know, no matter no matter what, what your background story is. Um, so I think that that we're seeing that where people are really united, people are coming together, and we've got to see that replicated and played out all over the country. You know, it, it really seems that the uniparty political machine is sowing chaos in our cities to destroy us from the cities out. But we have to see people everywhere, you know, urban, rural, city, uh, country, just come together, completely come together and uh, push for the United States. Because I don't think that it's too late. You know, I, I don't think that it's too late to get a handle on this, but it's going to be a massive task. And I think it's going to be a generational process. But we've got to get in and make the changes that we can make right away and hold the people that we can hold accountable right away, or it's going to end up being too late. That sounded like we were getting close to the prediction. I'm going to I'm going to give you a chance to do that. I've had a couple of people come in and say that we're looking at a storm coming in, um, you know, a storm pushing in on stagnant air masses always leaves kind of a beautiful morning, but it's a tumultuous night. And uh, that, that seems like where you're leading with that. I want to give you an opportunity to make maybe a prediction and and any kind of um, specific prescriptions that you're seeing from your spot um, in rural America, but very close to Washington, D.C. and kind of the levers of power. What do you where do you see this going? Let's say in the next 12 months. Uh, with with France as, as maybe a cautionary tale, and um, you know what's what's a, what's a great example of someone that's doing correctly if the, if such a thing exists. I think that over the next 12 months, especially, you know, we're in the run up to 2024. It's really a downhill slide now to 2024. It's completely taking over the news cycles. I think that we're going to see again, like we saw in 2020, we're going to see the uh, the uniparty. We're going to see their media outlets really seize upon a wedge issue so that they can get in and drive division in between the American people. There uh, is a very good chance that we could see some kind of event play out to uh to sow chaos you know some sort of false flag event that's always my caution like my fear is that there will be some type of massive false flag that's going to play out and they're going to be able to seize upon that to uh to really throw america into chaos so if i had to give any advice to anyone it's to seriously stay united do your own research like this is a I, I like to call this an information war. We're not to the point, and I, I pray to God every day that we never are, but we're not to the point where in the United States, we're in some kind of kinetic civil confrontation with our government or, or God forbid with each other. But this is an information war and it is being waged every single day, day in, day out, every hour of the day. You've got to do your own research. You've got to find sources that you trust. You've got to find things from multiple perspectives, multiple vantage points. You know, I don't just sit around watching conservative media all day or listening to independent media all day. I watch everyone. I listen to everyone. I read everyone because I'm trying to form a well-rounded viewpoint. And I'm trying to get the real scoop of what's going on. That's like my top advice to everyone out there is read a lot of different sources, 
view a bunch of different sources, listen to a bunch of different sources, because at this point, this is an information war. I do believe that there's going to be a deliberate and massive effort on behalf of the corporate media, on behalf of the political establishment to find an event, to create an event, to seize upon it and to uh, thrust America into chaos in the run-up to the 2024 election. But the way that we can counter that, the way that we can uh, that we can push back on that is by staying united, stay united with their neighbors, no matter who they are, no matter what they believe, no matter what they look like, stay united on the personal front, you know, with all of the people around you. And really, we've got to have these discussions with our fellow Americans about what's important to us and what we're going to do going forward, because this is a plan of division and chaos. You know, in 2020, people were stuck in their houses by themselves with no one else to talk to. And I think that in a lot of ways, it felt like the the TV was closing in on people, that everything that they were hearing out of their TV, you're this, you're that. If you don't do this, if you don't do that, then you're a bad person. I think that that was psychological manipulation that attacked a lot of people, that seized upon a lot of people, and there were a lot of snap and bad decisions that were made in that time period. You know, right now, yet we are not uh, we are not locked down. You know, there's always the fear that there could be some kind of new national emergency declared to do that ahead of the 2024 election. But I think that the more that people are out there talking to each other, talking amongst themselves, finding out what's really going on, the better chance that we have at pushing back against something like that. So I say, man, stay united. You know, the American people have got to stay united. I can remember in the run up to COVID. This country was as united as I'd seen it in my lifetime since probably the immediate aftermath of 9-11. People forget how united we were in the year or two prior to COVID. America was really coming together. And we've got to channel back that energy so that we can get this house in order. Because if we don't, I, I truly fear that after 2024, it could be too late. It's interesting that uh, Infowars is the name of Alex Jones's channel and always has been uh, kind of spot on. It's kind of lampooned by people that are on the on the political left. But, you know, in so many ways, he's always been kind of ahead of the curve on certain things. Uh, and you mentioned false flag that resonated very strongly in the chat. I don't know if you you're not seeing this, but there's there's about 20 people out there saying it's giving me a pit in the, in the bottom of my stomach. Explain to people what you mean when you say a false flag, maybe uh, telltale signs and what that looks like and what the goal is. Yeah. Hey, real quick, let me throw in, since you mentioned InfoWars, InfoWars was by far probably the, if not one of the, if not the most formative uh, reading, viewing, everything that I did through my teen years. I read, I viewed a lot of InfoWars, listened to a lot of InfoWars, and I think that that was very critical in helping me sort of open my eyes and uh, look into what's going on behind the scenes. You know, they were really digging behind the scenes, digging into confidential type sources and things before it was cool, before it was mainstream in the media. So I have a, uh, a ton of respect for those guys over there. By false flag, you know, really to uh, to to go back to Infowars, that's exactly what I mean, is when Alex Jones would come on TV years ago and warn about false flags, and oftentimes, oftentimes they would come true you know, when I say a false flag, I mean a government-sanctioned, government-sponsored. It doesn't even have to be the government. It could be one of these global entities that's clicked up with our government, the UN, the WEF. Uh, uh, an event, you know, a catastrophic event, a terrorist attack, the releasing of a bioweapon, the declaring of a national emergency, something that will kick off, something that will act as a catalyst to mass unrest or to the pretext to declare martial law in the United States of America. You know, we're going to have to really look out 
for the for the false flag attack, for the false flag event that can take place and set this off. And I think that in many cases, um, if I can touch on this for one moment, you know, it doesn't the event itself does not have to be fake. It doesn't even have to be orchestrated. The media coverage of these events in and of itself can be a false flag. We saw that in 2020 with the George Floyd situation. Really, like, while that happened, yes, but the way the media covered it was to achieve a desired outcome, to drive that wedge, to foment violence. The media coverage of that situation in and of itself was a false flag event. Let's, so that yeah, let's let's just dwell on that just for some second because that's I, I've never heard it said that way, and that's actually that's really really insightful. The event can be real, but the reaction and the media coverage of it can in fact be the false flag. It's it's that's so poignant and it's so accurate that they're pushing an agenda. They they can actually have it, and I wonder if this actually relates to what goes on in France. Something happened, but you mentioned twenty four hours later you have riots all the way across the country. That seems planned, but I don't think they planned a 17-year-old getting into a conflict with a cop. That doesn't seem accurate. So you can have the reaction to something be planned, but the action itself is just waiting for a trigger point. Absolutely. And the way that this, uh, that all of these sorts of videos, you know, the, I'm glad that you bring it up to the, uh, to the situation in France, because the way that that video just completely blitzed through social media all over the world almost immediately after it was released. You know, the video of the police shooting. Now, that is indicative that this was being pushed, that this was being egged on or sponsored by someone. You know, did they want, did they see this event happen? Did a big tech uh, corporation amp this up on their platform, allow it to go wild? Did the did the French media play some role? Did the French government play some role in this. You know, Emmanuel Macron is basically working for the Chinese Communist Party at this point, and he's a darling of the World Economic Forum. So I don't trust any of these people, but uh, I do certainly see parallels between the uh, the media coverage and really the social media takeoff of this video out of France of the of the young man being shot by the police and things that we've seen in the United States. You know, it's these the events can be real. But the reaction can be choreographed. The media coverage can be staged, can be choreographed, whatever you want to call it. They are looking for that desired outcome. It's it's just really insightful. And like I said, I haven't heard it said that way, but I, I love that analysis. Um, Frank, or fr tell people why you go by Frank or Frankie, because I think that's funny. And we'll, we'll, we'll wrap up here and I'll let you uh, tell people where they can find your stuff. I, I go by Frankie. Um, I, so, you know, it's as I've gotten uh, as I've gotten older. A lot of my friends have just started to call me Frank. But uh, I started publishing my articles um, when I first really got into like any in trying to write anything. Uh, when I was in my late teens, I started publishing uh, under the name Frankie, and then I got a little bit older a few years down the road. And uh, I started writing, you know, for a couple of different sites and I used Frankie. So that's just kind of kind of stuck. I, I will go by either, you know, no offense if someone calls me Frank, no offense if someone calls me Frankie. Either one is totally fine. Whatever, uh, whatever you're more comfortable with uh, is totally cool with me. So you can call me either name that you want. Um, all of my articles, at least I, I think all of them are published under the name Frankie. If you want to search me on social media, search Frankie, F-R-A-N-K-I-E, Stocks, S-T-O-C-K-E-S, and that's how it'll come up. But uh, definitely like conversationally, 
or you know, call me up on the phone, hey Frank, type thing. That's uh, that's what I get the most as I've as I've started to get older. So it's uh, it can be definitely be either one. But uh, you can find me on social media at Stock Seventy Six S T O C K E S Seven Six. That's Twitter, Getter, Gab, Truth Social, the whole nine yards. Nationalfile.com. I'd encourage everyone to check out National File. And, uh, dude, I just appreciate you having me on here. This has been great. Uh, I, I love your show. So I love what you're doing. I, I really appreciate the opportunity. I enjoyed it. That was uh, that was very fun. Is there any social media platform that you are more engaged on than others that people should uh, primarily follow you if they're going to pick one? Yeah, I'm a, I hate to say it, but I'm mostly engaged on Twitter. That's just seems to be where most of the crossfire comes in. You know, I, I love truth. I love the way that the, that it, the product looks and works. Like I, I'm a big fan of the way that they designed truth, but as far as like getting into the crossfire and uh, things like that, I really get on Twitter. I really stick to, to Twitter for most of my stuff. I try to post on everything uh, daily, but Twitter is where I'm really more, you know, I see something come in, I get on Twitter and I start trying to talk about it. So Twitter's my go-to. Yeah. It's the, it's the Seth pool where you can actually sling some mud back and forth and you can get some of it on you. It looks like, um, Frankie stocks, very appreciative that you spent this morning with us. Thanks for covering this. I want to check back in with you later on as well. And we'll, we'll kind of keep this going. And, uh, by all means, if there's something we need to boost, I want to tag anything that we can, uh, folks, You've been listening to the Kyle Serafin Show. If you like what you heard, we're going to read one of the five-star reviews up there. And uh, we've got Ryan Matta. Actually, before you before we shut this thing down, Ryan, you've got the live stream. Was there any um, salient comments that you wanted to, to uh, highlight? I know we were talking about maybe logging some of those. And your audio's off. <laughs> not, not just yet, Kyle. Sorry, I was too busy trying to keep up with all the videos and stuff. So I wasn't paying attention this time. I'll get them next time, I promise. All right, sounds good. Um, fantastic work on the videos today. If you guys did not see our live stream, you missed out on Ryan doing a fantastic job moving uh, an awful lot of footage so we could kind of see what's going on and get a real good visual while uh, Frank was describing it. And uh, I will read one of these five-star reviews here real quick. Let me pull my different cam angle up. There it is. It just says, this is from Boris. 5335 came in on Tuesday, five-star fave. He says, Kyle is a level-headed conservative voice who has walked the walk. He and his friends can speak firsthand to the corruption of our federal government. Well, that's all true, and we do appreciate it, Boris. Uh, it's guys like you and uh, our, our listeners that are making this thing worth doing. So thanks so much. As you can see, we've got 576 five-star reviews. Put yours in there as well, and we will read yours on the show when we see them come in. If you have a funny title, it's an even bigger bonus. Um, end of the day, folks. We are appreciative that you've been watching. We'll catch you again on Wednesday for the Kyle Serafin Show. And thanks so much to our guests. We'll put his stuff up in the show notes. So check that thing out. Have a very happy and safe 4th of July. We'll see you Wednesday. Thanks for listening to the Kyle Serafin Show, streamed live Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays on rumble.com slash Kyle Serafin. Follow Kyle on Twitter and True Social at Kyle Serafin.